acts intended to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. With those words which passed the General Assembly in 1948, the United Nations defined genocide. Yet genocide was not only an attribute or feature of the Second World War, as our guest argues today, genocide represents an attribute throughout human history. With us today, an expert on this grim but too human subject, Norman Neymark. Uncommon knowledge now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. A native of New York, the historian Norman Neymark holds bachelor's, master's, and a doctorate degree from Stanford. Dr. Neymark now serves as the Robert and Florence McDonald Professor of East European Studies at Stanford, and he is also a fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Institute of International Studies, both again at Stanford. Dr. Neymark is the author of a number of books, including Stalin's Genocides, Fires of Hatred, Ethnic Cleansing in the 20th Century, and his definitive work, The Russians in Germany, A History of the Soviet Zone of Occupation, 1945 to 1949. Dr. Neymark's new book, Genocide, A World History. Norman Neymark, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Nice to be here. Norman, you and I are friends. You are one of the loveliest and most persistently <laughs> cheerful men that I know. How did you come to devote such a large part of your career? Well, I just read the titles of books of yours, Stalin's Genocide, Ethnic Cleansing, Fires of Hatred, Ethnic Cleansing, and now this book, Genocide, A World History. How did the most cheerful man I know come to <laughs> devote himself to the grimmest subject anyone could imagine? Well, I mean, there is a, there is a story, and I'll tell you the story. Yes. And the story is that in the... Um, uh, 1990s, beginning of the 1990s, a uh, war and then ethnic cleansing broke out in the Balkans. And I had spent a couple of years, a couple summers over a couple of years, uh, in the Balkans among, you know, people uh, in, actually in southern Herzegovina, Serbs, Croats, uh, Muslims, uh, and others. And um, I was on archaeological digs then as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, and uh, this was early on, by the way, I, I, to redo the timing. The timing was at the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 70s, I was in the Balkans as a graduate student, and it was a wonderful time. And there, these were genuine multinational uh, societies that operated, um, you know, on the basis of acceptance and, and uh, acknowledgement and kind of mutual... Um, they operated to their mutual benefit. So the, the, the communism of Tito was, was kind of optional? It wasn't a deep part of the society? No, it wasn't a deep part of the right. society by the end of the 70s and, and the beginning of the, I mean, by the end of the 60s and beginning of the 70s. And Yugoslavia was actually the loosest of all the yes, communist right, right. societies. People could travel there very easily right. and people got along well. And it was a really... You know, I mean, it wasn't a, a wealthy place, but it was a place with a lot of, uh, of good humor, good food, lots to drink. Good and place to be a grad student. Yes, a good place, a great place to be a grad student. And, and I enjoyed that very much. So when the 90s came and the war came, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, if someone had predicted that Yugoslavia would fall apart, you know, an ethnic... Um, 
uh, killing and ethnic um, animosities of the sort that happened, families being torn apart, uh, friendships being torn apart, a whole society was torn apart. Uh, I was shocked and I wanted to get to the bottom of that story. I mean, a piece of this story is actually one of my professors, too, a man named Wayne Vucinich, who also uh, in his time was at Hoover mm -hmm. and uh, in the history department, um, was a Serb from, from that region. And I had gone with him originally in the late 60s to the Balkans, and he, he loved this whole atmosphere, you know, and was part of it, and himself uh, considered himself a Yugoslav, not necessarily a Serb or a Croat, right. or that sort of thing. And he was torn apart by this. He was already retired. I had, you know, I had mm -hmm. taken his place at Stanford. And, um, and just that the kind of tragedy of seeing a multi-ethnic society fall apart just got to me. And then I thought about our own society and some of the strains in it. And could that happen here? And then I thought about some other incidents in history about which I had read but didn't study in any depth. For example, in, in Nazi Germany, where the Jews had been, you know, assimilated. I mean, these were not unassimilated people. Many of the people who actually went to the concentration camp as Jews didn't even think of themselves as Jews. They thought they, of themselves as good Germans. As good Germans, and they weren't. I mean, they were. They often were. They often spoke had, the language, knew the history, yes, had come up in the German schools. and they often had converted. Right. I mean, right. they didn't even think of themselves as Jews necessarily religiously. Right. Right. And then you thought about other incidents as well, um, the Armenian Genocide, where Armenians had lived in peace in the Ottoman Empire for a very long time. And at the end of the 19th century, this began to fall apart. And then 1915, there was a horrible genocide. So I put all this together and I said to myself, what, you know, what's going on here and how does it happen? And again, in the back of your mind is we live in a profoundly multi-ethnic society, right? And, and we do pretty damn well with it. Yes, we do. Um, so the question is, you know, is that in danger? Can that happen here? And those kinds of questions then motivated me, first of all, then to write this book, uh, Fires of Hatred, about ethnic cleansing. And I kept, sort of kept on this trail, as it were. I didn't feel like I really answered the question. And I talked to a lot of my colleagues in Soviet history. You know, I'm a Soviet historian as well as a an East European historian, and then and more broadly, I started talking to my colleagues in Soviet history, and I said to them, you know, what Stalin did in the 30s um, in the Soviet Union sure looks like genocide to me. And they say, no, 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 that's not genocide. You know, that's something different, and that can't be considered genocide. And I, and I kept reading, and I kept thinking, and I kept arguing with them, and then I thought to myself, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Right. Right. And I decided then to write this book about Stalin's Stalin. genocides, you know, and I making the argument that what happened in the 30s, you know, this terrible mass killing uh, was genocide. And that's when I got into issues of the definition of genocide, right. which you read at the beginning. Right. Right. And that definition, as you will call, says nothing about social groups. It says nothing about political groups. It says nothing about other kinds of groups except for ethnic, religious, racial and national groups. Those are the four groups identified in the convention. Right. And I, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, why did they just identify those groups and not other groups? And I went back to the history of the convention, and it turns out the convention itself uh, is very political, and that the Soviets insisted that political and social groups, there were others as well, but the Soviets said, no way we're going to vote for a convention you know, that can be turned on us. 
And the Americans essentially said, okay, you know, we just, we want a unanimous convention. Nobody was paying much attention to 1948, it. they were still trying to get along with the oh, Soviets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this case, I mean, we're talking about a development, by the way, between 46 and 48. 48 right. was, okay. the 48 was the culmination. Right. And so everybody just signed on with these four categories. And they are thinking, by the way, they're thinking not about anything else really but what happened in the Second World yes. War. When yes. Jews were killed, when Poles were killed, when Russians were killed, and for their you know, ethnic and national and religious uh, um, identities. So you know, that really convinced me then to you know, go after this point and say, well, you know, just because the Soviets got this out of the convention doesn't mean we have to buy the convention just as it is. I think it's a good convention. Right. I think the laws that have come out of it have been very positive, but I think they made a mistake by not including other kinds of groups, like, for example, kulaks, right? A group right. of a group of um, uh, supposedly rich farmers, right. identified by Stalin and then attacked. He said, "I'm going to wipe them out," and he right. wiped them out. Right. So after that, I thought, "Well, that's enough of this genocide thing." But then, you know, people asked me to talk various places about genocide, and I'd get questions. You know, people would raise their hands and they'd say, "Well, what about the American Indians?" And I said, well, you know, I don't, I'm an historian of Europe and Russia, and I don't know much about the United States or Indians. I, I can't. What about this? What about that? And I kept saying to myself after this would happen, you know, I can't just say. Not my job. Not my job. Not, not, in, my, uh, not right. in my portfolio. <clears throat> so that's when I started teaching here, you know, uh, a kind of world history. And then I realized that it's not just contemporary. That's the other thing. We have a kind of hubris about modernity, I think, sometimes. That, you know, the only, only things that really happened that are important happened in the modern period. Right. And everything before then is just not important, right? It's right. not us. Right. So I did both things. I went back in time. And then um, I expanded, you know, f around the world. And I started looking into you know, Australian history and then to American history having to do with um, uh, Indians and Native Americans and thinking about genocide in broader terms. And I realized, you know, of course there are differences over time and there are differences across time, you know, in the modern period between various genocides, but the genocide is actually an incredibly... You keep seeing it. You keep seeing yeah, it. Yeah, you keep seeing it everywhere, exactly. And, and, you, and, and, you know, even if you hold up bar high, as I think you should, about what genocide is, because you know, everybody, right. in some senses, wants their genocide. Right. Even if you hold the bar high, you find it everywhere. And, and then you discover it out of nowhere, meaning, you know, you'll find things, you know, that you never even heard of. And, and all of a sudden, you start reading about a people you know, in Patagonia in the 1880s, you know, the Selknam people, there was a piece in the New Yorker, you know, I ran across it, the last Selknam speakers, a wonderful piece about a year ago, and it turns out there were about 400,000 of this, you know, native people in, um, in actually in Tierra del Fuego in the southern part of Chile, where, uh, you know, they lived there in the 1880s, Gold was discovered, um, you know, farmers came in and they said, you know, we want this land and there were no more Selknam 25 years later. Wow. You know, so these kinds of episodes happen over and over again and we just don't know much about them. Norman, let me be a student okay. in your class and take you through, if I may, just raising my hand and asking questions. Okay. 
some of the, the structure of the book in a certain sense. And let's begin with this question of definition. <clears throat> You've just given us the background of the UN's definition of genocide. Distinguish genocide from acts of war. Genocide doesn't just mean people killing other people. Right. Distinguish it for okay, us. Okay, so it's, um, I mean, the, the, the convention really does this pretty well, and then there's a subsequent yet there's a subsequent jurisprudence now, which has helped us a lot understand this. But first of all, it's, it's an intentional killing of a group of people as such. So that means what you're trying to do is eliminate that group. Right. So the obvious case, again, Hitler and the Jews is obvious. Actually, the Young Turks and the Armenians is also obvious. They're after that group. In a certain or sense, Stalin and the Kulaks, as well, I mentioned. You, you identify a group and you kill a group. War, right. you know, you're killing each other in military combat. The idea is not to eliminate that group. I mean, when we go to war with uh, the Nazis, we don't say we're going to kill all Germans. No. Or we don't intend that at all. We'd like the war to be over fast. So, so is, it, is it a fair, as a kind of mental experiment, thought experiment? The test of genocide is is there anything a member of the identified group can do to escape it? Right. And the answer is, I think, no. no. That's right. Because a Jew, the Nazis wanted to eliminate the Jews because they were Jews. A Jew could not say, wait a moment, I'll sign up to Mein Kampf, I'll convert to Christianity, I'll become a good Jew. There was nothing a Jew could do. Right. Okay. Right. Whereas in war, there is something the other side can do. It can surrender. That's right. And then the That's fighting right. stops. That's okay. Right. All right. right. Now, can I also, can, may I also ask, is there, this is tricky material, I think, tricky territory for a professional historian, but you right. being you, you will have right. thought it through. Right. Do you want to make it, <clears throat> do you want to draw a sharp moral distinction? Genocide is always wrong in and of itself. There's something intrinsically repugnant and evil about it. Whereas there is such a thing as a just war. We can argue about each instance, but there is such a thing as self-defense. You'll, you'll go for that? That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. I mean, genocide has been identified <clears throat> in the jurisprudence. There's some arguments. By the way, there are arguments about everything. Of I mean, course. do you understand that? Of and, course. And historians love to argue, and that's, uh, that's why we're in that business, I think, sometimes. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, yes, uh, uh, genocide is considered in the jurisprudence, and I think by historians as well, and there's a kind of meshing of jurisprudence and the historian in me when I do work like this, um, as the crime of crimes. It's oh, the right. worst crime you can commit. You know, worse right. than crimes against humanity, which can be horrible, worse than uh, war crimes, which can also be horrible, and even numbers can be more you know, and some other kinds of crimes. But this business of trying to eliminate, you know, the fundamental groups of people as group of people, right? you know, uh, is, you know, uh, should have a kind of opprobrium that, that um, you know, uh, is, is beyond the normal Anything crime. Right. And that's why the bar has to be high to prove it. Right. I mean, it can't right. just be, you know, random killing or as <coughs> now now professor I'll be the student again <laughs> Norman Neymark writing in genocide a world history genocide has been a part of human history from its very beginnings now let's move quickly here but genocide in the Hebrew scriptures genocide in Homer and then the Romans in Carthage right so the Old Testament 
genocide. Where do we see genocide? Okay, so um, uh, the Old Testament, I mean, we have to be careful here because the Old Testament is not necessarily true, right? It's not necessarily yes, yes, true. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, we have to be, we don't know that things went on. But what, were what was described in the Old Testament, I must say, was a shock to me. I mean, I was not much of a biblical student as a young man. And when I went back, I, I mean, I was truly shocked. Um, and even take something like, um, you know, Joshua, Joshua taking Jericho, right? Now, we all sing that spiritual, Joshua I grew up, Battle of Jericho, Jericho yes, right, sure. and the walls came tumbling down, blah, right. blah, blah. But it doesn't say Joshua then killed every man, woman, and child in that the city and destroyed the city so that nobody would come back. Now, we don't know. I mean, the important thing to say is we don't know that that really happened. And, you know, archaeologists, turns out, have been working on Jericho, trying to figure out, you know, what happened? How, did the walls really come tumbling? You know, all that kind right. of stuff. We don't know that this happened. But that repeatedly in the Old Testament, uh, that, you know, there's a story of Saul and Samuel, you, you may remember where, where uh, you know, Samuel's the prophet. God tells him, you know, talk to Saul, kill these people. And Saul goes off and he kills all these people. And then he comes back and he turns out he spared the king. And God is very angry and tells Samuel, that's it for Samuel. Uh, tells Samuel, that's it for Saul. You know, you have to no kill them. No loopholes. No, yeah. In other words, you've got to kill them all. Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images. Right. Altars and images? Well, see, that's, <clears throat> see, what's so, I, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I mean, what fits so perfectly is this notion, this combination of what you could call cultural genocide, which is the destruction of a people's culture so that they themselves, even the few survivors, can never, the culture will be gone. And you see this in genocide from then to the present. In other words, you don't just, well, I mean, you know, you don't just, take ISIS. You know, you don't just destroy the people. You destroy their churches. You destroy their books. You destroy their encyclopedias. The historical monuments. You destroy their monuments. Right. And this has happened all the way through. You know, you, you blow them, blow them these days, blow up their churches. Or in, in Bosnia, you know, you blow up the mosques. Right. Why do you do that? Well, you're trying to destroy the entire people and its integrity as a people so that they won't exist anymore. And it, and it begins with the Bible. <coughs> Troy, well, uh, the episode of the conquering of Troy that right. we read about in Homer. Right. Uh, okay, so this is in the third, it's not, that's not in Homer, but that doesn't I'm sorry. In the, this is in the third Punic War. And basically, uh, what no, the... Well, Carthage is the Punic... Carthage, right. But, you're, but you're Troy, oh, trying, you're talking about Troy. Yes, yes. Oh, okay. I want to get to talk about because Troy. I, 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 okay, Troy. Kind of, you, I'm sorry. I'm there's sorry. There's a kind of triad sorry. in here in the okay, right, 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 right. The Hebrew scriptures, and then we go to, to to the Greeks. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. So, so the situation in Troy is very, very similar, where um, you know the um, Achaeans come and uh, attack <coughs> Troy. Um, you know, there's all this sort of mythology about Helen and all this kind of stuff, which is very nice and very lovely, and that's what you learn. But what you don't learn is that when they destroy Troy, they kill everyone. Right. You know, they kill everyone. And, and they talk to each other about killing everyone. And if you don't kill everyone, you know, then you're less than doing your duty, you know, and doing your honor. Right. So it's the, it's the, it's the um, totality, you know, of the destruction.
right. uh, of Troy, and and indeed Troy was destroyed totally. I mean, right. that was Troy and that six archaeologists or have, have, have that they've that that's they've, actually right. demonstrated. Right. right, and now. Uh, Carthage. Carthage. We have three Punic Wars, Carthage right. and Rome. Right. It lasts about a century, right. and it ends how? Well, the Romans come. Uh, I mean, they, they sort of, in some fashion, they hate Carthage, and not because, you know, they, they're not a rival. They're not a serious rival in the Mediterranean. I mean, by that time, Rome really controls all of the Mediterranean, except for this these pieces of North Africa. North, a small bit of North right, Africa. Where, where Carthage is there. But I think it's uh, Fernand Brodel, the, the great uh, historian of the Mediterranean, says, you know, the, the Rome just couldn't stomach another power on the Mediterranean. And so they, this, this hatred was built up in the Senate, and then they attack, and, and they not just attack and subjugate. Again, you know, this goes back to your question of war versus genocide. You know, you can attack and subjugate without massacring everyone in the town. Well, as you know, they not only massacre everyone in the town, but they then destroy Carthage, blow up its walls, you know, all of the cultural monuments, and then the mythology is they salt it. You know, but apparently there's not any real evidence for the salting, you know, but... but they would have if they could. It, they would have if they could. And the image, nothing will grow here again, right? So these people... Uh, can't exist fits, and it's uh, you know, and and these these uh, episodes, you know, the biblical, the Greek, the Roman, make their way. I mean, the interesting part of this is not that they're just discrete episodes, located, you know, a thousand years ago, um, or more than a thousand years ago, right? Two thousand years ago, uh, they um, they are, or, or three thousand years ago, they are. Um, they reside in our culture, you know, they reside in our every mentality. Educated culture, they, every educated Westerner right. knows right. the Old Testament, knows Homer, right. knows Rome. Right. right, right. Norman, in all three of those instances, the people who engaged in genocide thought they were doing right, portrayed it as their duty. So yes. where, where do you locate we have to be very careful, I guess. I'll put this in the, this is my thinking things right, through as right. I'm making notes in the margins of right. your book. But we, there's always the danger that we moderns will look down on the ancients right. and consider ourselves morally superior. So is there a legitimate question to be asked along the following lines that in the times we're talking about, in the ancient world, that was the nature of warfare, not, not, not genocide as we now understand it, that if you wanted to defeat, there were three Punic Wars after all, the Carthaginians wouldn't let it go, and some, well, you, right, the, right, right, in right. the end it was the Romans right, who wouldn't right, let it go, right, but, right. but you had to wipe people out in those days, otherwise you were just storing up trouble for your children and grandchildren. A generation later they'd come back. Is there an argument for that or not? I think there is an argument for that. I mean, again, you know, all history is about argument, and I think that, that, it, <laughs> and that is... a good one. And that, and that is an argument that can be made, but I think the counter-argument is more powerful. Mm. And the counter-argument is, um, and you see this, um, you know, you see this uh, uh, in Thucydides, uh, in the Peloponnesian Wars, you see this uh, even in some of the, uh, you know, Roman statesmen who were against, you know, this kind of, of destruction. Um, there are those who propound, 
you know, winning a war and, and you know, making a peace mm. and incorporating territory, you know, into your own. Um, and there are those who propound uh, destruction. This goes all the way up to the present. You know, so, so you're always going to have people say, no, this is counterproductive. This is a bad thing to destroy people who are ready to live productive and reasonable lives. So I don't, I, I don't privilege the ancient world in that way, and or the modern world. Uh, you know, there were that, alternatives even then, and they yes, knew it. And they yes, knew and it. They we weren't taken. Right. You know, there are businesses. There's there are questions about uh, Caesar and Gaul. You know, who uh, and, and there was a lot of destruction of Gaul. You know, a lot of destruction of Gaul. And you know, if you would sit down and ask the question, as I tried to do, you know, I tried. I couldn't do everything in this, right? So. Um, you know, if you would ask yourself the question, is that genocide, you know, what he did in Gaul, you know, the occupation policy, some of the killing that went on, massacres of which there were a great number, my answer was no, you know, because it was pacification for the, the sort reason, that you were saying. For the yeah. same reason that Sherman's march to the sea in, this, in the Civil War right. is an act of warfare. Right. A nasty one, maybe even a war crime. Maybe what Caesar committed in Gaul was a war crime, but it wasn't genocide. Right. All right. There are differences. Genocide in the 20th century. The Holocaust is such a classic case. Uh, this feels odd to say it because it can never be forgotten, but we don't, in, in some way, we, you and I don't need to dwell on it. The Nazis destroyed something like six million Jews on their way to eliminating all Jews in territories they controlled for the reason that they were Jews. Right. All right. Stalin, you've said that your Soviet, your colleagues in Soviet history yeah. push back. They're not so sh So describe the events and then tell us why you consider what Stalin did in the 30s a genocide. And then I'd like to come to Mao as well. Okay. So as you know, there's a little book called Stalin's Genocides. Yes. And if I could summarize that. <coughs> by Norman Neymar. Uh, yes. Yeah, by me. And I'm not sure I can summarize that very easily. But let, let's let's... Let's just accept my definition of genocide, which includes social and political groups. Stalin, in the beginning of the 1930s, is a product of the um, first five-year plan and forced collectivization, uh, knew uh, that he was, in some senses, in deep trouble. That is to say, neither of these things worked very well. And he was the kind of leader uh, who insisted on control but also um, on eliminating any potential enemies. And his notion of what a potential enemy was, was blown way out of proportion. So he... Paranoia. Paranoia. I mean, I, 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 I agree. Robert Tucker once said he suffered from a paranoid delusional syndrome. And I can define that for you if you want, but it, I agree with that basic idea. In other words, you're not just out to get me, but these cameramen and the people behind, they're all out to get me too. And those whole groups are out to get you, right. not just uh, individuals. Right. And so he creates groups, right? I mean, that's an important part of my story because he's creating these groups out of social and political enemies that he puts in a group and gives them an identity. 
Now, let me again use the Kulaks as an example because that's, it's the purest example of a non, they're not an ethnic group, right? They're not a religious group, a, they're not it's racial. A, it's, a it's a social it's a Social group. and economic standing. They're, right, they're right. rich peasants, well-to-do well peasants. Supposedly. All right. Okay. I mean, they're not really. I mean, he's creating this group, right? Because if you're, uh, you are opposed to the collectivization, no matter who you are, you're a Kulak. If, sometimes priests are Kulaks. Your kids are Kulaks. You know, who don't know the first thing about what collectivization is all about? Your wife is a kulak. Your grandpa is a kulak. So he's creating a group. He's in some ways ethnicizing the group, meaning he's giving them certain kinds of characteristics that, um, you know, are common. He's stereotyping them. And then he's attacking them as a group. And that attack occurs, you know, in 1931, 32, 33. They're attacked. Many are just shot. The rest are sent off into gulag, or many are sent, you know, the, the millions are sent off into the gulag where they die in special camps, a lot of them, and that sort of thing. And they carry this appellation kulak with them. You know, it's not as if you go into the gulag and you're not a kulak anymore. No, it's stamped in your stuff. You know, you are a kulak. And, you know, if you go fight the war later on, World War II, they will sometimes let you off, right? But you're a kulak for life. I mean, you're, you're sort of, cre okay. in other words, a group is created. I mean, think, okay, so, so that, that, Peter, you <clears throat> said we can talk as, yeah. as friends, so let's talk as friends. Yeah. So an ethnic group, again, is, is a construction in many ways, right? It's a construction. What that means, basically, you know, all the, a lot of the social science, you're creating an ethnic group. And some people may be members of it and some not. Again, think about even the Jews in Germany. Some of them didn't think of themselves as part of that group at all, and those within the group didn't think of them as part of the group. Yet the Nazis make the ethnic group, right? They're creating the group. You're not creating it. So similarly, Stalin's creating these groups. He creates other groups of asocials, meaning, you know, um, uh, alleged... Uh, alcoholics, alleged prostitutes, alleged gamblers, alleged street people, all these people. And he puts them into a group called asocials. And he arrests them as asocials and he shoots about a half of them and deports the rest of them. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Right? This is another group that he kills off. Then there are attacks on other groups. There are attacks actually in this case on ethnic groups, on Poles and on Germans. I mean, there was a whole Polish action which you know, I include in my analysis, I say, you know, you can think about it as genocide, but maybe not. You know, in other words, there are ways. Again, this is all about an argument. And then he creates political groups. Mm -hmm. I mean, the three big purge trials in 38, you know, were groups of people who had identities. Their relatives were arrested. Their friends were arrested. They were all part of these groups. They were attacked as groups. Again, when I look at the purge, the purge trials and the killing and the, um, and the uh, deportations um, and the suffering uh, that went on, it's, it's hard to make a kind of really clear case, you know, black and white case for genocide. But I think you can make the argument that this is a kind of po <coughs> political genocide. So, so I put all this right. together and call it Stalin's genocide. So and the sure. test that we agreed on a few moments ago was there anything that a member of the, of the victim group could do? Once, I had, once Stalin had identified me as a kulak, once that got stamped in my papers, I couldn't say, no, no, comrade. I've, I've memorized Marx. I've memorized Lenin. I'll yeah. do anything. There's, yeah. no, there's no way out. 
Mm-mm. Once you're identified as a member of the group, he no, just keeps coming. I mean, there, there are always exceptions. By the way, Peter, let me, let me just say, even with the Jews, there were exceptions. There were Jews who survived the war in the Wehrmacht. Right. I mean, there are always exceptions. Right. Uh, right. There are Armenians who survived, women who converted and went into, uh, you know, Kurdish or Turkish harems. So there are always exceptions to genocide. So the exception doesn't prove the rule. But on the whole, uh, you know, kulaks tried to escape their fate by going to work in the city in a factory, but they came to get them. Yeah. You know, in 1937-38, they came to get them. They wouldn't let them escape. Mao. Give me just a sentence or two on Mao. I know this is, uh, I'm tr- we're compressing worlds into, into bullion cubes here, but right. give me a sentence or two on Mao. Okay, um, uh, especially the Great Leap Forward. Which is? 1958. Right. Uh, I think should be considered a genocidal action. I mean, basically what Mao did is tried to move all of the peasantry into these gigantic communes. And in doing so, it was an absolute catastrophe, which he would not recognize. So in 58 and 59, we don't know exactly how many people died. I mean, Frank Decoder, who comes to, to Hoover every once in a while, you know, has a number of 45 million people. It's just staggering. I mean, Andy Walder, who is here at Stanford, you know, has a somewhat lower number in the, in the 30 million number. And what you see there is a different kind of campaign, but nevertheless one where the government is attacking a group of people, the peasantry, and forcing them, you know, into a mold and, and ready to see them die. In other words, you have, we have all kinds of, of quotations from Mao. It doesn't matter. You know, what's, a, what's more than millions of people? We got plenty more. I mean, he says things like that. You know, what if they don't have anything to eat? You have enough to eat, he says to the party people. That's all you need to worry about. And you see that kind of, um, it, uh, I mean, it's not just indifference to suffering and to death. It's a kind of purposeful, and that's very important, you know, to the definition of genocide. It's a very purposeful set of policies that kills large numbers of people. And so I've included that in what I think is genocide. The United States. More than two sentences, but I'm sorry. No, no, no. (laughs) So last large topic here, the United States and genocide. First, our own history. Let me quote you here, genocide of world history. The removal of the Cherokees, you talk about the Native Americans, the American Indians. The removal of the Cherokees from Georgia in 1838 and their forced march on the Trail of Tears to a reservation in Arkansas. People are marched 800 miles to Arkansas. A fifth of them die on the way. That cannot be considered genocide. Here the term ethnic cleansing can most fruitfully be applied, close quote. So... In some, you, you recognize that horrible things happen in the settlement of this country, but our own history and is by and large, of course, you have soldiers who say, uh, p- figures on the frontier <clears throat> who say the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but fundamentally what the settlers wanted was the land, right. <clears throat> not the extirpation of a people. Right. Fair? In the case of the Cherokees. In the case of but the Cherokees. B- broadly? No. no. Yeah, you'll, in the book, I also talk about the Yuki Indians. Right, here in California. Up in California, in, in uh, Mendocino County. Uh, and there, I consider that a genocide. So the way I decided to deal, I, I think it's um, not useful 
to think either of the the killing off or the killing of, of Native Americans or, by the way, of Aborigines in Australia as genocide as a kind of general uh, right. description of what happened. I think you have to look spe at specific sets of incidences. And since the Indians themselves thought of themselves as different, I mean, the Cherokee and the, they don't think of themselves as, right. as Yuki, right? right? And the Yuki don't think of themselves as Cherokee or Navajo for that matter. Um, I think you need to look at what happens to each of the tribes separately. I and see. when you look I at what see. happens I at see. the Cherokee, they really did want the land. Right. And the Cherokee fought like hell. They actually had, you know, they had lawyers, they fought in the courts. You know, they did the best they could with Andrew Jackson, but Jackson, no, was going to say, Off no, you you're know. going. Even the court, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cherokee that they should be able to stay. But no, they had to go. And as they went, many died in a horrible set of events, uh, which I consider a horrible set of events, but I don't think of as genocide because they didn't want to wipe out the Cherokee. In the case of the Yuki, and other cases in California, by the way, there's a very good new book by a man named Benjamin Madley from UCLA, very recently called The California Genocide, I think. And it's just out, uh, you know, maybe a few months ago. And I read it, and it talks about more of California Indians and what happened to our California Indians. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's an incredible story. But I just looked at the Yuki and um, came to the conclusion there that the, the people who wanted that land and who, um, you know, were supported by the California government and the governor. This is uh, late 19th century. Or, right. Or, These, okay. This is the 1860s, um, 1860s. So it's after Gold Rush and after statehood, which comes in 48 and 1848. And, and the national government is not paying attention because it's fighting a civil yeah, war? They're, far, they're way too far away. Yeah. Right, Besides, right. they wouldn't pay attention. They don't okay. pay attention to anything okay. anyway. No, this is all local government stuff. The first, you know, governor of California had to deal with the Yuki uh, set of issues. And um, the purpose there was to eliminate the Yuki. You know, not, Unambiguous. You know, not right. to drive them out, not to send them to a reservation up in Oregon or Washington or a different part of California. The purpose was to eliminate them. And, and, and you can see by these... The, group called the Eel River Rangers, you know, was a group of people commanded by a guy named Jarbo who's looked at his job as to murder Indians. Got it. All right. Um, I'm still going to console myself that it wasn't national policy. No, <clears throat> no, I don't right. think it was. I think okay. that's, well, the states had much more control yes. over what happened. Yes. All right. So, so there are, we've got genocide to deal with in, inside the United States in our own history. Let me come back to your to what we began with, which is the Balkans. Actually, so I want to contrast. Or I was just I actually I don't know how you're going to answer this. Two events in the mid 1990s, and one is genocide begins taking place in the Balkans as the Serbs as the Serbs place pressure on the Muslims in the Balkans, and also in Rwanda, we have two different tribal groups in a kind of spasm, it's just an amazing event of violence, in a very brief period, one group, largely using machetes, hacks to death 800,000 of the other group. In the Balkans, the United States intervened. We bombed the Serbs, we got them to back off, we stopped it. It was sloppy, we may, you could argue, I don't know what you would argue, we haven't ever discussed this, whether, uh, 
too slow, waited for the Germans too long, but in any event, we went in. And in Rwanda, <clears throat> there were discussions, we know, in the Clinton White House about whether we should intervene in Rwanda, and we didn't. Were we right in the Balkans and wrong in Rwanda, right in both instances? What is the duty of the United States when it sees a genocide taking place? Well, I think, uh, you know, both cases are terrible tragedies. And uh, whether we learn from those tragedies or not, you know, is a really interesting question. And uh, I'd like to pose it to Samantha Power, who wrote about this and is, you know, our previous uh, representative to the United Nations. Um, uh, both are tragedies. Uh, both showed uh, the failure of American policy. The Balkans intervention came late, too late. In other words, we were pushed and pushed and pushed. It's true, we had a very clever opponent in Slobodan Milosevic, uh, and we were charmed by him a little bit, sort of like you're charmed by a snake. You mm. know, I mean, it does happen in international politics, and um, we let him get away with far too much. The Clinton White House did not want to intervene in the Balkans under no circumstances that they want to intervene. And we know this from all kinds of writing about this in right. retrospect. Um, they simply didn't want any part of this if they could avoid it. The problem was the, the um, uh, Serbs kept pushing our nose into it. You know, they'd kind of let up and make some kind of deal and then they'd push our nose into it again and again and again. And the last time they pushed our nose in it was July of 1995, when they did commit genocide at Srebrenica. And what happened at Srebrenica, uh, you probably recall, about 8,000 uh, Bosnian Muslim men and boys uh, were taken out and shot and killed and uh, executed and buried in mass graves. And Madeleine Albright went to the UN and waved, um, you know, pictures, uh, aerial photographs mm -hmm. of these mass graves, which we had. And we realized what had happened. And at that point, I mean, we had been there. We'd been pushing. There were some French and, you know, troops there. Um, Americans had been, you know, trying to negotiate. But there was no real intervention until really, I mean, I don't want, I want to try to describe this in the most analytical and less judgmental terms I can. So I would say until... Um, you know, it was demonstrated beyond any measure of a doubt that we had to intervene or the Clinton White House would have been in big trouble with the American public and with the world opinion. And so we intervened, you may remember, in the fall. Mm -hmm. And we bombed the Bosnian Serbs for the first time, serious bombing, which we and the British carried out together. We, and they, they said uncle. They gave up. Right. And that's <clears throat> led to Dayton. Right. right? The in, agreement at Dayton. In the fall. So, <clears throat> so that's... Bosnia. Bosnia is a terrible tragedy. Kosovo was something different where we moved more quickly. Right. But Bosnia, I think, remains a dark spot on American policy. And I think anybody who had anything to do with it feels a lot of guilt about being so late. And Rwanda? Rwanda is just a plain dark spot, right? In other words, Rwanda was a case... You know, where this, there was this UN general, Dallaire, a Canadian, you know, uh, general uh, who had a small group of troops in um, command. He was commanding some UN troops. 
in Rwanda, and he said, you know, something's coming here. They're going to kill, you know, meaning the, the um, uh, Hutu were going to go after the Tutsi. Help me. Send us something, and I can take care of it. I mean, they don't have to send very much, but you do need to take action. The U.S. and the U.N. needed to take action, and in neither case did they do so. We, I think, were burned by Somalia, right. you know, which happened earlier. Right. And it, the, the country was just not ready to get involved in foreign, you know, affairs like that. Right. So last, last question. So both are, both both, are bad okay. So last question. We have now a new president of the United States who says America first and who campaigned pretty clearly. It's uh, foreign policy is complicated and parsing this president's foreign policy statements is also complicated. But it seems very clear, I think this is very clear, that he believed the invasion in, into Iraq and uh, was a terrible mistake and that this notion of nation built, the notion that the United States ought to do good in the world, no more. We only intervene in the world when our direct interests are at stake. I think that's a fair characterization of what seems to be the Trump foreign policy, the foreign policy test. We go only if we have a direct interest. Now, you mentioned a moment ago, we have ISIS cutting off the heads of Christians, there's, there's a form of genocide taking place in the territory controlled by ISIS. And you say what to President Trump? You say we have a duty to stop that kind of stuff? Because why? Because at some level, simply doing the decent thing is an American interest? How do you construct that, the I argument? Would, I would put it in exactly those terms. I'm a patriot, you know, I like this country and I owe it a lot. And, and, and so do all of us. Um, uh, so, you know, in, in some fashion, that, that doesn't bother me. But um, it does not mean that the rest of the world is to be ignored or that uh, serious crises where we can do some good, um, you know, should be uh, avoided under, on, on all costs. And that when genocidal situations come up, it seems to me we have the obligation, the moral and ethical obligation, which is part of what national interest is about. I mean, national interest is not just about, you know, oil and, and money and, and prosperity. It's, it's about being a, able to look at ourselves in the mirror. It's about, exactly. Right. You, you put that exactly right. And uh, being able to look yourselves in the mirror and, and not only that, look at other people around the world in the mirror. In, not in the mirror, but look them in their eye and say we did everything we could to help, you know, within reason and within, um, you, know, uh, you know, the judgment of, of, of good people who are in this administration. And there are some who can decide, you know, whether this will be successful or not. You know, we have a, we've signed on, uh, and the UN has signed on, uh, to, a, to a doctrine called responsibility to protect. And that responsibility to protect says clearly, you know, that, that you know, sovereign countries, countries around the world have to, cannot engage in, you know, destructive actions against their own people, or the rest of the world is, has to act. You know, we have to act. We have to be part of a, an entire world. And so, you know, my sense of this is, 
I mean, I can't tell you, Peter, you know, what I would have done in Syria at specific times along the way. No, no. It's very difficult. It's a difficult situation. It's a hard situation. You have to you have to try to figure in how many how many how many boys you're going to lose and, and girls right. and women, right. men and women of the armed services. You know, what is it? What are the costs of intervention? You, you have to figure that in. And that's part of thinking about uh, our interests. But it doesn't mean that you ignore you know, these horrible genocidal situations. Right before I came on your program, I'll just, just a, a little footnote. I looked up, um, you know, on the online, you know, contemporary genocidal right. situations and people listed, you know, 10 of them around the world. And Taking I place right now. Right now, right now. Uh, what, you know, the main one being in Syria. I think that's at the top, you know, and the Yazidis and Christians. And the Yazidi Kurds who were already cut to pieces right. and could be cut to pieces more. Um, and Christians. And, you know, um, it's not the same as genocide itself, but it is a situation which one has to, you know, pay attention to and think about and try to help those folks, you know, who are threatened with have with elimination as a group of human beings. You know, I mean, you know, individuals you want to help too. But this is a whole group, you know, the Yazidi Kurds are a part of, a part of all of us. Norman Neymark, author of Genocide, A World History. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.